Hello and welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast about language, linguistics and love. I am not Danny Bate. Regular listeners will have noticed the lack of a trap bath split in the word podcast. I am in fact Krishnan Ramprasad, but I am here to interview none other than Danny Bate. Yes, indeed. Uh, the tables have been turned for this episode. I am on the receiving end of the very format that I created for this podcast. And I'm very grateful to be on the show. Uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. I think it's only fair that I have the questions directed at me for this episode. Krishnan, as people will have heard, was my guest for episode four. We are friends and co-authors, academic co-authors, and he's very kindly agreed to be the host for this episode. See, I'm taking over already. I'm already in hosting mode. Like uh, I know, I know. Here I am. I'm mode. trying to hijack your podcast. I'm not doing very well. I think you've hijacked it back, but uh, we may as well. Um... <laughs> so now that this is my podcast, why don't you start, Danny, by introducing yourself and telling us a bit more about uh, who you are and what you do? Fair enough. I don't think this answer will really surprise anybody listening, but uh, my name is Danny Bate. I am a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh in my fourth year of PhD. And since British PhDs tend to be quite short, being in my fourth year means that I am very much at the end of this great doctoral journey. And I work on syntax in the subfield of syntax within linguistics. So that's the idea of things like word order and how we string our bits of vocabulary together. And I specifically work on the Indo-European family of languages. This is a huge family of languages, I think, with some very, very famous members. And I'm all to do with what can we say about their lost ancestor that we believe these languages all came from. Fantastic. And I imagine that in the course of the uh, ensuing conversation, we'll have a chance to talk a bit more about some of that. But if you don't mind skipping the small talk, we may as well go straight in with the first question, which is, um, tell me about a language you love. This is genuinely quite difficult. I've seen this episode coming a long way off. I think you might have suggested it. I think this is your fault, uh, this idea. So it seems only fair that you're the host. But even though I've had a fair amount of time to prepare for this, it's genuinely quite difficult as to what I want to talk about today. Because like most linguists, there isn't just one language that I love. So I, I've been mulling this over, and I think the real deciding factor was that the only other language that I could possibly talk about today was already taken by somebody in this first series, which is Czech. I love talking about Czech, and I've got all sorts of things to say about it. I think anybody who's, you know, gone for a beer with me knows it doesn't take long for me to start talking about Czechs, Czech and the Czech Republic. But that was done. That was chosen by Arabek Shimik, and so that's really taken the decision out of my hands. All of that is to say that I have mulled this over, and a language I love and want to talk about today is Old Irish. Fantastic. We got there in the end, didn't we? Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he's good. He's good. He's so good. <laughs> um, okay. Old Irish, our old friend, maybe the friendliest or the least friendly of the Indo-European languages, depending on your outlook and how long you've spent trawling your way through the glosses. We can guess certain things about Old Irish just by its name. It's old and it's from Ireland, a language spoken from about the 7th century for the subsequent couple of hundred years on the island of Ireland. But enough for me, I've not chosen this language. Beyond what I've said already, give us a quick lowdown of Old Irish. Who, what, where, when? 
It's roughly placed, the Old Irish period, at sort of 600 to 900 AD. So it's an early medieval language. The interesting thing about this is that even though it's old, even though it has the word old in the name for this language, it's not actually the oldest form of Irish that we have evidence for. That would be primitive Irish, written in the Oum script. People might have seen this. It's that script. It looks like you, you draw a line and you draw notches against that line and a set of notches indicates one particular letter. Now, the interesting thing about the difference is that we have primitive Irish, which we can say is Irish up to the year 600, and then we have Old Irish. These two languages, even though they are in this chronological relationship, are extremely different. And hopefully we can get into the changes that happened that really birthed Old Irish and its many, many unique features. So in terms of its wider genealogy, Old Irish is a Celtic language, so it belongs to the Celtic language family. Also within Celtic are languages like Welsh, languages like Gaulish, the language of Asterix and Obelix, spoken in Roman and pre-Roman France. And post-Old Irish, in the subsequent period, it splits. It splits into a new family of languages, the Goidelic language family. So Old Irish becomes Middle Irish, another medieval language, and then this then splits into modern Irish, still spoken on the island of Ireland, Manx, spoken on the Isle of Man, and Scots Gaelic, spoken in Scotland. Really, today, it's limited to the islands of Scotland, but it used to have a much bigger distribution across Scotland. As I said, it's a Celtic language. What that means is that it belongs to the Celtic language family, which itself is part of the wider Indo-European language family. So this includes things like English and Latin, ancient Greek and Hindi and Persian, some of which have already had their moment in the spotlight on this podcast so far. But the amazing thing about Old Irish is that even though it definitely is an Indo-European language, it's fairly, how can I put this politely, um, bonkers. As I've mentioned, Primitive Irish is the earliest stage, Old Irish is slightly later. And what we find is that in the linguistic transition from Primitive Irish to Old Irish, we have these incredible grammatical, phonological changes that drastically alter the shape of this language. Consequently, among Indo-Europeanists, among people who work with this language family as a whole, Old Irish doesn't have a great reputation. It's its its almost feared. Or would you agree with that, Krishna? That was part of uh, what underlay my slightly uh, double-edged uh, comment about Old Irish, that it being both very friendly and not very friendly. It's friendly because uh, the content of the text is, is, is just so interesting and wonderful. And once you've gotten your head around uh, how things like mutations work. But uh, if you're coming from, let's say, a classical Indo-European perspective, if you're coming from Latin and ancient Greek, uh, then at first glance, o- Old Irish is is barely recognisable because of all of these changes that you've talked about. But spectacularly, once you start unravelling everything, it starts to then again look like what you might expect it to. So I think that there's been tremendous work that's been done on Old Irish, but it's definitely something which maybe your average Indo-Europeanist, if there is such a thing, um, probably views with at least some trepidation. I share that view. Old Irish is tremendously important for the study of early Indo-European languages. So it's something that you do have to get to grips with. But that process of getting to grips with it is um, uh, terrifying, frankly. Um, As you said, tremendous work has been done in this language to the point that it is now much more accessible than, it, say, it was a 100 years ago. There are books, there are textbooks that do make this language a lot more approachable. But I suppose it's just one of these things you do have to get to know, and you have to get to know it on its own terms. You have all these grammatical words that you've never used for studying any other language, and here they all are 
you know, fundamental to the study of Old Irish. So we've talked a bit about Owen and Primitive Irish, which is a beautiful writing system, but uh, what are they writing Old Irish in? Are they still using Owen? They're not. They're not. It's clear that knowledge of the earlier writing system does endure. We have evidence for it. It's clear that it's sort of preserved as an alternative writing tradition. Um, but no, Old Irish is written in the Latin alphabet, so that's helpful. You don't have to get to grips with a whole new script. However, it's one of the difficulties, unfortunately, the writing system of Old Irish, because it's written in the Latin alphabet, but it's written as it was transmitted from Rome through Britain and into Ireland. Because of that journey that it's been on, and because of the way that people who were speaking British Latin or common Brythonic, the ancestor of Welsh, used it in such a way that they modified what the letters could stand for, and then passed that modified version on to the Irish. Consequently, it doesn't work very well for Old Irish. This is the problem. Um, it's fairly well suited to British Latin, what we presume British Latin was like. It's fairly well suited to Welsh, because it reflects certain sound changes that happened in the very early history of the Welsh language, but doesn't really work very well for Old Irish. So, for example, take something like the letter T in Old Irish. At the beginning of a word, it stands for one of two sounds. It stands for either T or T, depending on what vowel follows. But that same letter, in the middle of a word, stands for D. Likewise, D, the beginning of a word, stands for D. In the middle of a word, stands for the. So it's reflecting sound changes that happened elsewhere. And these alternate way of using Latin letters then gets passed onto the Irish. It's one of the challenges as to getting to grips with Old Irish. Every time I have to read an Old Irish word, I have to do this kind of orthographic computation in my own head as to hang on what letter stands for what in what part of the word. So that's fun. That's really interesting. So when you're reading Old Irish, uh, even though it's in the Latin alphabet, what you're really getting is another layer of sound changes in, in a completely different language or set of set of languages, rather than a writing system derived purely for the purposes of writing Old Irish. Do we know when, roughly, the Irish started adopting the Latin alphabet rather than Oum? And do we know why they might have done that? That's a very good question. I think it's more for a historian, to be honest, than a linguist. The earliest sources that we start to find in Latin letters do still date the Old Irish period. So it's about 600 onwards. In terms of pre-manuscript stuff, stuff written in stone, archaeological finds, that sort of thing, Oum does dominate. So th they do tend to adopt it. Why? Probably Christianity would be the biggest factor in this. Christianity being very much a religion of the book. You have these gospels, these sacred texts. Even though a lot of work goes into creating a manuscript, I'd argue it's still easier to create a manuscript and write the gospels on it than to carve the gospels out in stone. That would take time. So consequently, our sources for primitive Irish are nice and short. These would be little monuments in the landscape, perhaps things like markers, territory markers, also tombstones, essentially written in primitive Irish, and they're nice and short. When you've got these longer texts coming in, the Latin alphabet, writing, creating manuscripts, it's all just much better suited. That does bring me to say, and this is, again, a historical point and one that I'm not particularly qualified to comment on, but something in the history of Irish that I just find amazing. We have all these manuscript texts for Old Irish. So many of them were not found, and I'm, when I say found, I mean, you know, identified in the modern era as being Old Irish. So many of them were not found 
in Ireland. They were found on the continent. They were found in continental Europe. So, for example, we've got things like the St. Gall glosses, the Milan glosses, the Würzburg glosses. These are all in Central Europe or in Northern Italy in the case of Milan. What's essentially happened is that the Irish have gained Christianity, even though they weren't part of the Roman Empire and they weren't part of that post-Constantine mass conversion to Christianity, even in spite of that, they take Christianity and they massively run with it. They essentially take this religion and then bring it back to continental Europe. We have Irish monks and missionaries founding monasteries in Switzerland, in northern Italy, in Germany. I'm going to be in Vienna next week, and I've noticed that you have things like the Schottenkirche in Vienna, which is a daughter church of another church that was founded by Irish monks in the early medieval period. So they went all over the place. They were incredible missionaries, incredible scholars. They were clearly brilliant at Latin, and yet they were never part of the Roman Empire. So I find all of that just fascinating. And that's just a little bit of historical context to the Old Irish language. It sounds like Old Irish and Latin are in quite a lot of contact because a lot of these Old Irish scribes and and missionaries clearly know Latin and, and the alphabet itself seems to have been transmitted through Latin. Would you say that this is something you might be able to tell from the texts that you're reading in Old Irish? I mean, you absolutely would. I mean, first and foremost, because so many of these texts are actually first and foremost, Latin documents, and then we have Old Irish added beside the Latin. But yes, there's a lot of contact. There's certainly a lot of borrowings. Uh, So the Old Irish language is getting words from Latin for various purposes, many of them relating unsurprisingly to Christianity. What I find fascinating is that they're adopting these words, and many of them are actually quite ill-suited to the Irish language, especially the sounds of Irish. So we can tell, based on comparative evidence, that Irish, as a Celtic language, at a very early stage, did not have the sound p, this bilabial sound p. What it did have was qu, qu, which has a labial quality. You can hear that in the w sound, and is also voiceless, so the vocal folds are not vibrating. So even though in some regards they are two different sounds, this was the best that Old Irish could do to approximate Latin words coming into the language that began with p. What that means is that we end up with all sorts of words in Old Irish that come from Latin words that start with p, and they end up in Old Irish with k, which looks very strange, but again, with a little bit of knowledge of history, this approximation, phonological approximation, makes sense. So, for example, a very famous person associated with Ireland, early medieval Ireland, was St. Patrick. He was not Irish. I do want to make that point. He was not from Ireland. He was actually from Britain. And his name would have been Patricius, a Latin or perhaps early Welsh name. And this, of course, gets borrowed into Irish and becomes the modern Irish name Porig. And yet we do also have a secondary name, an even earlier name, perhaps dating to the era of St. Patrick himself, which is Cothrucha. Cothrucha. All sorts of sound changes specific to Old Irish have gone into making this. Likewise, Pasca means Easter, as in Paschal in English. This ends up in Old Irish as Cask, as this Old Irish word for Easter. So, yeah, it's a really interesting, and there's just layers upon layers of lexical history that go into Old Irish vocabulary. Fantastic. So you've already talked a little bit about primitive Irish. We know that it's earlier than Old Irish. We know that it's typically written in a different script. Could you tell us a bit more about the changes between primitive Irish and Old Irish? 
Yes, I mean, they are, they're incredible. They're so interesting. And they absolutely are the key to connecting Old Irish to its wider Indo-European context. So one, for example, is that we see an explosion of sounds in this transition from primitive to Old Irish. So, for example, primitive Irish, in terms of its consonants, had about 13, 13 consonant phonemes that made up the primitive Irish language. Krishna, would you like to take a guess? How many consonants does Old Irish have? Ooh, I think it must be, must be at least 20. Is it something like that? Something like that, yeah. I mean, it's definitely greater. Um, 45. Oh my goodness. Okay. 45. And that's one of the things. And essentially, two very simple and very natural sound changes, namely palatalization, so creating sounds that were a bit more palatal, and lenition, creating sounds that did not restrict the airflow in such a way. So essentially creating a sound like the out of de, where de is restricting the airflow and the is its lenited, its softened version. And we go from 13 consonants to 45. It's a massive explosion of sounds. Another thing that results from these sound changes is that we do see a shift in grammar. When you look at primitive Irish, it looks comfortably and nicely Indo-European because it has endings. It's expressing bits of grammatical information through the end of a word. So take Latin or ancient Greek. These are Indo-European languages, and for example, if you have something like, I don't know, uh, femina in Latin, nominative singular, means one woman. Feminae, plural, means women in general. It's the ending that's telling you that little bit of grammatical information. Primitive Irish has these two. In fact, they are strikingly similar to what Latin has, which is evidence, perhaps, that the Italic languages and the Celtic languages may actually be more closely related than to other subfamilies of Indo-European. What we see is that because of sound changes, and especially because of the Old Irish stress pattern, which is fairly rigidly on the first syllable of the word, the endings disappear. In terms of sounds... That's very natural. It's natural that the endings of a word might drop off when it's the beginning of a word that's being stressed. This is phonologically very natural, but a grammatical nightmare. Because how are you expressing your grammatical information? How do you tell when something is plural and when something is nominative and when something's not nominative? So we've got natural changes producing a massive shift, drastically altering the shape of the Irish language as we move from primitive Irish to Old Irish. This is what makes Old Irish a problem for Indo-Europeanists and historical linguists. This is what changes the way that it connects to the rest of the family. Thank you. That's a very enlightening view on why it is that Latinists uh, and uh, other Indo-European language specialists might somehow balk at Old Irish because the things that we hold on to for dear life when we don't really know what a language or a sentence means abandon us when we start reading Old Irish. Now, I want to wrap up this section just by asking, because we sort of danced around the issue, but it's definitely worth discussing in a bit more detail. What are the sources for Old Irish? Yes. So being a historical language and massively predating the invention of recording equipment, we're absolutely reliant on things that people wrote down at that time. And while I've mentioned the scary sounds, I've alluded to the scary grammar, I've talked about the scary writing system, an absolute delight when it comes to the old Irish language is the sources because they're amazing. They are quite varied. So we've got a mixture of things. We've got things you might expect from an early medieval language. We've got things like sermons, 
And they're all very interesting. But for me personally, what I love about it is the stuff that is actually quite specific to Old Irish. I'm thinking of two things. Old Irish poetry and the glosses. You've already mentioned Krishna and the glosses. I think we should unpack what we mean by that word. Essentially, what we've got is we've got these manuscript sources where these talented scribes have painstakingly copied Latin texts. And what's happened is that other scribes have come along and glossed words within those Latin texts. When I say gloss, they're essentially writing tiny notes between the lines or in the margins that tell other readers, other scholars, what this word may mean or what they think people should know about this particular sentence. They're adding additional information. That's what the glosses are. Why I think they're so brilliant, because that description does sound a bit dry, is that they are enormously personal. They are so, they're so human. It's not completely natural language, but it does almost feel quite casual in that it's almost like one scribe having another conversation to another scribe. I'm writing this thing today and my friend or my colleague will read it later. So while you've got glosses that talk about terminology and aren't that particularly exciting, we have these incredible notes that really give us a window into the real people who were writing these little notes in the margins or between the lines of these beautiful Latin texts. So, for example, there's one in the St. Gaul glosses where the uh, glossator has written right at the very bottom of the page, Membrum nua droch duv oni ebur nihal. New parchment, bad ink, I won't say any more about this. He's, say, he's saying to other people, I've got no more glosses to add because the ink is not great. Maybe it's running out or it wasn't made properly. And this parchment is perhaps just, it's not up to scratch. Likewise, same collection of glosses. At the top of the page, we have Biendacht for Animam Ferguson Amen Mar War Dov. A blessing upon the soul of Fergus. Amen. I'm really cold. The text is associated with Switzerland, but it would have been produced in Ireland before travelling uh, all those many miles. So we have this shivering Irish scribe writing and saying, I'm really cold. Likewise, uh, we have two people who say where they're from and they give their names in that same text. Or in another document, we have somebody who writes in Latin, Finitur Secundus Liber. Here ends the second book. But he doesn't write it in Latin letters. He writes it in Greek letters. And we know what his name was. His name was Dorbene. And he's essentially showing off to other people. Look at me. I know Greek letters. Look how well connected. Look how knowledgeable I am as a writer. So they're just the glosses are incredible. We rely on them so heavily for our knowledge of Old Irish. And they are just delightful. So those are the glosses. And I'll just mention one final thing. And this is something that really that people really should go away and look up. Old Irish poetry. In particular, one wonderful poem, Pangurban. So it's written in Old Irish. And it's a full poem. And it's about a cat. The cat is called Pangoban, literally white pangor. I don't think it's widely accepted what pangor means. And this cat hunts mice. And the monk, presumably the monk, the scholar who's writing this old Irish poem, is looking at the cat going about his work and thinking, huh, he has his work and I have mine. He hunts mice. I hunt meanings. He's working in the corner of the room. I'm here at my desk day and night. There's a real sense of camaraderie that both the monk and the cat have their little roles to play in the world, essentially. It's a delightful poem. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend uh, going away and reading it. It's quite short. And we only have one copy of it. Again, one of these treasures in Old Irish. They are interesting in terms of their genre, in terms of literature. But what gets me 
is that they are so personal. I'm all about getting back to people in history. So old Irish sources, to be honest, all the pain of working through the grammar and the sounds and the writing system, it's all worth it when I get to deal with these texts. Yeah, it's it's just tremendous. I think it's one of the things which anyone who's worked on an ancient language can really appreciate is how wonderful it is to reach back into the past and 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 and, and see people experiencing emotions and uh, and feelings uh, that are so familiar to our ourselves, whether it's our love for our pets or, or freezing in the cold, or indeed to share the sentiment of one old Irish scribe, I believe, ale has killed us. So we do have all of these wonderful little personal touches as well as something a little bit more intellectual preserved in these texts. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that particular one. Yes, indeed. Two times we have the word presumably meaning hangover, once written in Latin letters, once written in Ohm in the same manuscript. So a monk is essentially saying, I have a hangover. Maybe he got caught and maybe the next time he wrote it in Ohm so that the abbot wouldn't see. He was maybe the abbot didn't know, and he thought, well, I'll, I'll write it out in a different script. I, I don't know, I'm speculating, but just delightful. And here we are, a millennium later, telling all three million of your listeners that uh, this guy had a hangover. So now we're oriented and we have a decent idea of the language that we're talking about today. Why don't we zoom in on you? What's your relationship with this language? So it's a recent one. It's a recent relationship, I will say that. And Old Irish is something I've had to get to grips with very quickly. Long story short, Old Irish is one of the languages that is integral to my overall PhD project. Because I work with historical syntax, because I'm looking at a group of Indo-European languages, comparing them, looking at what they have in common, looking at how they differ, all with a view to get back to what the syntax of their ancestor might look like. I had to take from the very beginning a broad set of languages. If you're going to attempt to reconstruct an ancestor language, the proto-language, in this case proto-Indo-European, you have to work with a very broad set of languages. Otherwise, you're not reconstructing the common ancestor of the whole family. So if, for example, you were to say, I'm going to say something about proto-Indo-European, but all your evidence came from, say, Latin and ancient Greek, you're only getting to the intermediate point where those two languages meet. And maybe that was Proto-Indo-European, but you need to bring in more languages. You need to have a much broader distribution if you're going to say, I'm getting back to the common point of origin. So from the very beginning, I identified that Old Irish was one of the languages that I would have to study and have a look at its syntax and see how it all fits together. I left it till last because of its reputation. Other linguists had essentially instilled in me a fear of this language, a fear that was somewhat justified because it is a long process of having to get to grips with Old Irish, you know, the, the actual process of, of learning it. Funnily enough, it went from being the language that I feared to being the language I love the most of the ones that I study. And this is a language that not only has absolutely captivated me, that I perhaps spend the most amount of time researching, writing about, thinking about... It's a language that's taken me not only to speak in Oxford and Manchester, it's taken me to Los Angeles. So who whoever said that studying Old Irish didn't open doors for people? Um, it's incredible that I've, I really feel that even though I am primarily self-taught in Old Irish, and there's so much about Old Irish I'm yet to learn, what I do know about the language has just been so captivating and so invaluable to 
not just my research, but my sense of self as a scholar. I said this to one of my PhD supervisors when I was working with Old Irish, putting together everything I've learned from the other languages in my language set, the seven that I study, applying that to Old Irish, applying these concepts and these skills and and really making headway with the syntax of this language, I said to my PhD supervisor, this is the first time I've ever felt like a scholar. This is the first time I've had that sense of, I have something to say. And that's not to say I'm right about Old Irish, and that's not to say that I know best, but that real sense of, there's a conversation here in academia, and I actually have something to contribute. So truly, I love Old Irish. <laughs> I think you've uh, communicated that very well. It's, it's it's wonderful, really, when when you find something and on first glance it scares you, and the the first response is fear. But over time, fondness grows, and then it becomes uh, a, a deep and lasting relationship with the material that you're working with. You mentioned a couple of times that you're interested in syntax. Could you just quickly tell us what you mean when you talk about old Irish syntax? I'm always happy to talk about Old Irish syntax any time of the day or night, because the syntax of Old Irish is very distinct. It's something that really puts the language at odds with other Indo-European languages, and even with the subsequent Goidelic language family. So there are many things in Old Irish that we don't find, for example, in modern Irish. It's unique in some respects. Old Irish is a fairly regular VSO language. And when I say VSO, what that means is in your declarative main clause, essentially a clause that makes a statement that tells you something, as opposed to questions or orders, its order is that the verb comes first, and then the subject, and then the object. That's broadly what Old Irish does. That in itself instantly differs from other Indo-European languages, where we might say that SOV, subject, object, verb, is the typical order. That's certainly the case in Latin and in Sanskrit. So that instantly says changes have happened. We've got some syntactic meat to get stuck into to talk about how this developed from the original syntactic situation. And yet we can dive deeper still. So it's not fair to say that it's just the verb that comes first in the Old Irish clause. It's really the verbal complex. The complex is complex. Many ingredients go into this initial unit of the clause. So it's not just the verb. It's also things like preverbs. Preverbs are like prefixes. They're nothing too bad in that these are little elements like pro or ad in English words that essentially contribute to the meaning of the verb. Then we also have what are called conjunct particles. So we're getting into very old Irish specific terminology here. Conjunct particles are not preverbs. They're things like the negator ni. Uh, they're things like subordinators that tell you that it's a subordinate clause like ko, which means so that, or ara, which means that or so that. And these elements all interact with one another in very strict patterns. And this, at first glance, looks extremely scary. It's very strange that you have these elements and they have to go in a certain order. And when they do go in that order, then they can affect the stress. The syllable in this overall complex that gets stressed varies according to the ingredients of the overall verbal complex. And if this sounds confusing, it's because it is. And this does take time to get used to. To add to this, Old Irish has what are called infixed pronouns. An infixed pronoun, well, pronoun, I think, is a familiar bit of terminology. Pronouns are things like uh, it or him or her or me or you in Old Irish. And they're infixed because they seem to stand within the verb. You put them within 
all of the ingredients that I just mentioned. And this is unique. This is so alien to anybody coming from Latin and Greek. Do you look at it and go, an infix pronoun, you're putting your pronouns within the verb. But the thing is, add a little bit of history, the infix pronouns, not that strange at all. So that's the example of what I'm getting at. There is great stuff to sink your teeth into with Old Irish as a syntactician. Of course, you know I agree, but I'll say for everyone else in the room that I do agree that there's a lot of very interesting syntactic business going on in Old Irish. And it's, of course, very interesting to Indo-Europeanists as to how this system in Old Irish arose from something probably quite different in the shared ancestor language. I have to say that you've used the word love probably quite a few times already, but uh, since the script is telling me, I'm going to ask the question, Danny, what is something you love about Old Irish? (laughs) The script. Oh, we're having such a natural conversation. You know, the illusion is gone. Yes. So what is something I love about Old Irish? Well, it's absolutely true. There are many factors to this language. And I did think about this properly as to how I can say succinctly, roughly within five minutes, so I spare myself the editing, what makes me so passionate about Old Irish. And in a single word, it's history. I am, first and foremost, a historian. That sounds controversial. I haven't had the training. I have no degrees in history. I really am like an interloper within history departments. I have no business being there. But I mean this that in my heart, what I care about is that sense of history, that sense of time and of change. I hope people listening will know what I mean. I was raised in the UK on a diet of things like horrible histories and the programme Time Team on the TV. And my parents absolutely instilled in me from a very early age that deep love of history. I'm a lifetime member of the National Trust. Let's put it like that. Okay? Bet you didn't know that was a thing. Why do I mention this? Why do I have this long prologue? It's because Old Irish is a language that really needs to be approached from a historical perspective. I've mentioned already that there are a couple of good textbooks out there. For example, David Stifter has the Shangodelk, uh, which I absolutely recommend. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's an extremely accessible introduction for students to the Old Irish language. Likewise, we've got uh, Ranka de Vries's Student's Companion to Old Irish Grammar. For me, the success about modern approaches to teaching Old Irish is that it integrates history from the very beginning. Old Irish, if you approach it at first glance, it looks really scary. And it doesn't look particularly Indo-European. We've, we've hammered this point home already. But with just a little bit of history, all of these things that may be confusing and unique just reveal themselves. And that's why it helps to talk about things like the Indo-European connections, like the earlier stage of Primitive Irish, where things are looking a little bit more familiar. Because when you do that, the transition into Old Irish becomes not only very natural seeming, but also fascinating. Isn't it interesting that one language has, you know, become another? So to take an example, this is all very abstract. So to give an example, the mutations. What do I mean by mutations? Well, if you've studied some modern Irish or modern Welsh, you will have come across this term mutations, and they're really nothing to be afraid of if you take the languages as they are. What a mutation essentially means is that in Welsh and Irish, the beginning of words changes to tell you something about the preceding word. In Old Irish, we have these mutations, and you could take a word like fier. Fier means man. It's related to Latin wir, from where we get words like you know virtue, and it's also related to English were, as in werewolf. This could be 
nominative singular, so its case could be nominative, or it could be accusative singular. On its own, we don't know. We know what case it belongs to, and therefore what its role in the overall sentence is. Is it the subject or is it the object? Not because of the ending of the word, but because of its effect on the word that follows. So combine fier with an adjective, something like og means young. Fier og means a young man, literally man young. That's nominative and singular. Fier nog is young man, but accusative singular. So what we've got here is the mutation, this little change, it's adding a nasal sound to the beginning of the word that follows. Likewise, make the word plural. We could have fier kyle, that would mean a thin man. We could also have fier chael. So it's not nasalizing, but lenighting the adjective kyle. That tells you that this overall phrase is plural, tells you something about its case. Those are the mutations in a nutshell. And you can learn these. The human brain is capable of, of processing all of this. Old Irish speakers presumably had all of this in their heads. But bring in history. Take the example of fier og and fier nog. What's happened there is that the nasal effect comes from an ending. It comes from an ending on fier that used to be there. But as I mentioned earlier, we have these drastic, these cataclysmic changes from primitive Irish to old Irish. We have this initial stress where the first syllable is stressed and the endings are disappearing across the language. So what's happening is that the effect of the old nasal ending is having to pick up the slack, essentially, to tell you that this is an accusative noun. We've got to a point now, pre-old Irish, where fier used to have, in the accusative case, a nasal ending. What do most early Indo-European languages have in the accusative case? A nasal ending. A nasal ending. I was going to say the Latin accusative singular of this word would be virum. Exactly. Virum. So what we've got there is once upon a time, Old Irish is just like Latin, just like ancient Greek. So the accusative ending is a nasal consonant, something like Latin feminam, dominum, uh, or in ancient Greek, technein. And what's happened is that this ending has dropped off and what's having to step in to express the old accusative case to essentially pick up the slack is its effect on the following word. That's what mutations are. In a nutshell, they are sounds becoming grammar. That's all they are. So bring in some history and Old Irish just opens up and you're able to connect this fascinating language on its own terms to a fascinating wider world of Indo-European. I think that you're very good at proselytizing for Old Irish. I think any historical linguist listening is going to be uh, stirred up into a frenzy of excitement uh, with the level of uh, historical interest um, in terms of seeing how languages change and how uh, a system at one point in time somehow freezes this whole historical layer uh, of language into the mix. Let's come back to that trip you made to Los Angeles, because, of course, uh, that was something that we did together. I don't think that's any any secret. Um, it's all out there uh, on the Internet, and hopefully the products of that will uh, be available at some point in the future. We were trying to do exactly this, right? We were you talked about the infix pronouns. We, we were trying to look at how the infix pronoun systems in Old Irish and the clitic systems of Sanskrit might be explained by a shared ancestor and how that would have developed probably a lot further in one direction on the old Irish side and, and probably not that 
much on the Sanskrit side, given, of course, that the earliest Sanskrit uh, attestations are over a thousand years before the earliest Old Irish attestations. In, in a nutshell, essentially, our whole talk was exactly this layer of history. Old Irish makes sense by looking at Sanskrit, its distant relative. You know, one spoken in Ireland, one spoken in India, but nonetheless, bring in history and you can join the dots. If I were to explain our talk in one sentence, it would be Sanskrit preserves the system that Old Irish developed out of. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Which, from a syntactic point of view, from a traditional philological point of view, not controversial, to be honest. We were just exploring that, joining the dots, and really using Old Irish and Sanskrit to talk about the syntax of Proto-Indo-European. And I think it went down well. To be honest, I can't remember giving the talk because I was just in a like a massive stress-induced blur in my mind. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it was well-received. And since I'm playing the host today, I'm obliged to say that if you want to hear more about Sanskrit, you should go back and listen to the episode Sanskrit and Krishna Ramprasad uh, released some episodes ago on A Language I Love Is. Yep. See, he really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> So we've had quite an education, quite an induction into Old Irish so far, but I've got to ask you if there's something you haven't said yet, what is something you would like the audience to know about Old Irish? I suppose really the point is related to what I've just said about history. And it's something that I can get a bit preachy about. I will say that I feel this is my vocation in all the stuff that I do with linguistics, especially with non-specialists, is that historical linguistics, the theories that we come up with, are not just there to be thought about and to remain abstract. Historical linguistics is there to be used. What I mean by that is that historical linguistics, these ideas and bringing in concepts of change, examples of the ways in which language can change over time, is enormously useful. I recommend this for literally anybody who's tried to learn a language. Look into the history. And I mention this in respect to Old Irish because it really is the historical aspect that unlocked this language for me. We've mentioned already the transition from Primitive Irish to Old Irish. What we've got there is a cataclysmic change, but the origins, the causes for this change are remarkably Simple. As I said, palatalization and lenition. Two terms that absolutely need unpacking, and the onus is on us to make these terms accessible, comprehensible, and usable. But what we have here are two examples of sound changes that can happen, I dare say, in any spoken language. They are nonetheless simple. You can get your head around them. You can say, okay, lenition is where this kind of sound becomes this. Palatalization is where these sounds become a bit more palatal. They're pronounced closer to the hard palate of the mouth. So we have these amazing, drastic changes that change the face of the Irish language forever. But at the heart are two changes that learners can quite quickly get to grips with and then apply so that's really the point that I want to leave with listeners, especially the learners out there, people who are trying to get to grips with any language. Have a look at the history. Have a look at the way in which the language has developed. I promise you that through the lens of history, things will start to make more sense. And I mention this because I think Old Irish is such a good example of this. Get your head around the ways in which languages can quite naturally change and you unlock 
a huge amount of language and help yourself in the process. So I suppose with history in mind, old Irish isn't that scary after all? No, it's really not. It becomes friendly, lovely and enjoyable. Well, friendly and enjoyable, that's certainly what the last uh, conversation we've had has been. So uh, I suppose at this point we should probably wrap things up. While I'm still speaking in coherent sentences, let's leave it there. Krishna, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being the step-in host. Well, I mean, I had the easy job. Thank you for uh, a fascinating insight into Old Irish. And uh, I hope we speak again soon. Yeah, well, I've, I've definitely got to get you back for another language, but uh, maybe you can be step-in host again for episode 30. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, that's if I don't start my own podcast, but <laughs> I think you're probably safe for now. Oh, no, I'd look forward to that enormously. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, thanks very much for listening. I've been Krishnan Ramprasad. See you later. For the 15th final fun fact of a language I love is, I'd like to give another example of how Old Irish borrowed and modified words. In this case, it's a word that Ireland got from Britain, but one that has since re-entered the British linguistic scene. Planta is a Latin word for a sprout, shoot, or twig, any new kind of growth. It is, of course, the origin of English plant. It also entered early Brythonic, and through the metaphorical sense of offshoot or offspring, plant is Welsh for children. Bearing these various meanings... Planta was also borrowed from either Brythonic or British Latin into Old Irish. Now, as mentioned already, Old Irish at an early stage lacked the sound p, having to approximate it with qu instead. Thus, Latin planta became Old Irish clan. With the Gallic migrations into what's now Scotland, clan takes on its modern meaning today for the traditional groups of Scottish families. Well, that is just about it for this first series of A Language I Love Is. What an incredible experience it's been for me. I have learned and enjoyed this so much. Back in August, I was so hesitant to begin this podcast. On the one hand, I felt I had to try it, to develop my academic outreach with a project of my own, free from Twitter, yet I couldn't shake the feeling that it was doomed to fail, and that ultimately the world didn't need another young man with a podcast. That last part may still be true, but I can now say with pride and relief that I'm not the only one with an appetite for this podcast. What got me over that initial hurdle of worry was the kindness and enthusiasm of other people. These, of course, include my 14 guests, to whom I will always be grateful for giving me their expertise, their passion, and their time. Sarah van Eindhoven, Iris Camille, George Walkden, Krishnan Ramprasad, Samapriya Basu, Stephen Hopkins, Johanna Laxo, Charles Rowe, Jilly Marquini, Alexander Jabari, Francis Young, Radek Shimik, Victoria Noble, and Joya Kakioli. But, as well as my lovely guests... I owe a deep debt of gratitude to all the other people who have been good enough to get in touch with encouraging feedback. These tweets, emails, messages have often kept me going through the long and tedious process of editing each episode. To name but a few, Imogen, John, Florence, Albert, Anichka, Bara, my parents, and William Mahler, who designed the artwork that I still love and who has enthusiastically supported each episode Thank you all. 
Now it's time for a Christmas break, as I pause from active podcasting and take some time to reflect on the strengths and weaknesses of the show so far, before I embark on any second series next year. If you'd like to give your own feedback, do get in touch. And please, while I'm off air, keep recommending the show. Every recommendation is helping the podcast to find its audience. It's at almost 700 followers now across Spotify and Apple, with listeners in 40 countries, all of which I'm just thrilled with. But onwards and upwards. This has been an incredible start, but let's see where a language I love is can go next. So, that's it from me for the moment. Till the next series, dear friends, keep well and keep loving language. Bye-bye.